Hello. Hello. Welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Jeffrey Lilly. And I am Sarah Black. And we're coming to you with a midweek part two. A little special bonus yeah. situation. Our, our murder uh, conversation ran... A little long. A little long. Per um, usual. And we know you guys don't mind the, the longer episodes, but this one was... But like, do they? I don't know. Uh, so we're coming to you midweek. Surprise! Yes, surprise Thursday sale on the podcast episode. So we got that. Uh, well, so we'll wrap out uh, the story of Martha Brailsford for you in the next hour or so. But before we do, uh, for those of you who have joined the Patreon, uh, we're giving you shout-outs on live and on the air. It's definitely not live. It's live right now. It's live for us. It's not, live for not us. Live for them. It's always live for us. So let's kick off these shout outs. Here we go. So first on the list today, we have Courtney Leather. Oh, thank you, Courtney. Appreciate you. Then Don Sullivan. Don Sullivan. Thank you, Don. And Don actually has been active on the Patreon already. I don't know if you saw her message. I did. I did. In response to part one of the Martha Brailsford murder, we were having that issue with you know, what is, what's the word for when there's um, coincidences that you can't really explain and they just keep happening? It is synchronicity. Oh, so. it's your, your vocab word of the week right there, guys. Synchronicity brought to you by Dawn. Thank you, Dawn. Uh, following that, Allison Foster. Allison, thank you. And then we've got Kelly Best. Kelly Best. Thanks, Kelly. Kelly, you're the best. Oh, I wonder, do you think she's ever heard that before? Oh, I'm sorry. She's probably heard that a lot. I don't I wouldn't get tired of it. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> and lastly for this week, Carmel Dunn. Beautiful. Thank you, Carmel. Again, a big, big thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. We've already got quite a few that are excited about Jeffrey's um, commitment to nope. you all. Nope, I'm scared of commitment, just once, like you, Sarah. Once we hit 50, mm-hmm. we'll see. We're going to shave ice into the back uh, of his head. Well, I won't, but his barber will. <laughs> oh, but, but what we will do is we'll videotape that. We will definitely videotape that. Yeah, yeah. So if you are a Patreon subscriber, you will get to see my shame. Anyway, uh, let's get into today. Ooh, weird thing. Speaking of synchronicity. I had texted you last night as I was editing the episode. Another weird coincidence. I happened to be dog-sitting this week, and I was staying in an apartment that used to be the Parker Brothers factory. Oh, the Bell Apartments. So I was... Well, they're not called that anymore. SoFi. Oh, what are they SoFi. called? SoFi. S-O-F-I. SoFi. Oh, they're, since when? Since they are no longer yellow. Are they still yellow? They're, They're yellow. still yellow. What were they before? Yellow. No, they were. They just got painted yellow, like within the last few years, maybe like five years. Oh, well, they were the bell. Yeah, I think they might have been blue originally. I don't know. Yeah, but they're no longer the bell anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely not. You don't get down that way very much, do you? No. <laughs> yeah, so definitely not the bell anymore. But okay. Those, but those apartments. Yeah. Right next to the train station. Yeah, Park Brothers. Yeah, used to be the Parker Brothers buildings. We forgot to mention that Mr. Tom Imoni used to work there. Yep, he was an engineer for Parker Brothers, uh, which I am not 100% sure what that means. Uh, I've always sort of assumed that it meant like as these 
boards and pieces are being made. So by the way, the, Par the Parker Brothers factories were here. Uh, so that means um, any of you or your parents who, who had a Parker Brothers game that includes Ouija boards, that includes Monopoly, that includes Clue, made in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, and early 90s, was made here in Salem. Uh, that is the, the, the processing plant, the machines, uh, the pieces, the design, all done here. So as an engineer, I'm thinking he either is directly like on the line with the machines or helps build the machines that build the boards. Or he might be designing the games themselves. Eh, that is possible. I don't, I, th I think that would have been a different title. I don't know. I saw his salary and he was getting paid pretty well. But he also didn't have the job for very long. Yeah. His division yeah. was dissolved. Yeah. So, But he did work for Parker Brothers for a time. So yet, a, yet another slice of Salem history. That's uh, somehow embedded in the story. Yeah, yeah. So I'm staying in one of the Parker Brothers buildings, which is now apartments, mm -hmm. and I'm editing the episode about an atrocious murder in which the murderer happened to work at the Parker Brothers. This is a very weird moment. I was like, oh my God, did Tom Maimoni like work in this building? Is it the other building? I believe Dawn would call that synchronicity. That's what, I already said I'm that. Reiterating. Okay. Yes. 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 Isn't that weird? It is. So weird. Maybe he's watching you. Dawn also says that when synchronicity comes up, you should play the lotto. So I think we're both going to do that today. So by the time you listen to this, Maybe we have won the billion-dollar lotto, and Sarah will have bought me a summer house. I don't know how that thing got turned around. If you win the lottery. I'm going to buy McIntyre's chair and not let you sit in it. I'm getting the silent treatment right now. Usually I'm the one getting the, 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 the looks from across the room. <laughs> so if you haven't listened to part one already, go back and do that. When we left Tom Maimoni, he had just given detectives yet another story, that a rogue wave had hit the boat, causing Martha to lose her footing, hit her head, and go overboard. And he called it an accident. He's not arrested or anything like that. No charges are pressed. He does agree to help the investigators in their search. So if he can tell them exactly where she went overboard, they can narrow it down. But he's definitely, the heat is on, right? Yep. So we're at Wednesday the 17th. This is when other women start coming forward because Tom Maimoni's name gets out. Okay. People know that he is involved and they know his boat is involved. Oh wait, I had an incident with Tom as well. This happens that week. So uh, two women, one the 8th, one on the ninth and 10th, or ninth or 10th. And so it's not like, and, and I'm not saying there's not instances weeks or months prior or other times in his life. He now has one woman, Martha Brailsford, who, who's ended up dead. Um, and within days before he went on the boat with her, he went on the boat with two other women. Uh, so in the course of four days... That, that his wife was in Kansas? That, yeah. Um, he's uh, gone out uh, with uh, several boat trips. And it it seems with the intent of, of trying uh, to have some sort of physical relationship uh, with these women is what we learn. 
So this was a part of the story as I was researching that really upset me. I think it would probably upset anyone. Hopefully. Especially women. Um, as someone who has dealt with sexual harassment and assault before, this struck way too many familiar chords. And it is very easy to see how a fragile male ego can come apart and lash out. And it seems very much so this is what was happening with Tom Amoni. Fragile is an understatement. So one of the women to call the police, her name was Roxy. She lived pretty close to Tom. Um, she was a divorcee, divorcee, mother of two. Um, and she had sailed multiple times with Tom and didn't really think anything of it. If anything, she was kind of attracted to him. She was interested. He had told her that he's this sad widower, painted that same picture he painted for Martha. However, on the last trip she took with him, he started making advances, started speaking about very inappropriate things, and then decides to drop his pants. He says, I want to sail naked out of nowhere. So he goes behind sure. behind the wheel, drops his pants, and um, sails for most of the rest of the trip with no bottoms on. And uh, at least for part of it, uh, sexually aroused as, as well. Of course, Roxy is... She feels trapped. I mean, you're on a boat. Can you imagine being on a boat surrounded by water in that situation? There's nowhere to go. Yeah. I mean, can you jump off? Can you make it to an island? You can try. And I, there's a whole lot to unpack here. Um, and, and one thing that, that we don't have, uh, I, don't, I didn't find any record of any of this behavior previously. Like, like assault towards women? Like in, in, yeah. in, in the decades before in his life, in his teens, in his 20s, in his 30s. Um, and I, I'm not saying there, there, there has to be, but I am surprised that there isn't. Mm-hmm. Right? That we know of. That we know of. That we know of. Because it, it seems as though something just, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I he, see it as escalation. He's also on his fourth wife, which is like a whole nother thing. And so he has three failed marriages. He's on his fourth. His wife's out of town. And now all of a sudden he's going out on the boat with the, within days of these three. And you're like, maybe it does come out of nowhere. But in, in my head, it, doesn't, it didn't come from nowhere. So I don't think his nature came from nowhere. Mm-hmm. I think he was a, uh, we've said, a pathological liar. Yeah, yeah. Definitely has a fragile ego. Yeah, narcissist. Ne- and- definitely a narcissist. He needs someone to show him admiration. He could have just been in a, I mean, a more manic mindset. And because his wife was away, he, he fell into this place. And maybe if she'd been home. And because he lost his job prior to that, yeah. like within the we, last we couple months. Triggers. Yeah. No, yeah. I think that definitely played yeah. into it. And maybe he was. He was also in debt. I mean, there was a lot of his life. From the outside, looked great, but he was not in a good spot. Yeah. But his wife thought they were. It was all a facade. So I think, and then I think when you take now you've taken her out of the picture, and he has nowhere to turn to, right? He doesn't have a whether or not she was a positive or negative or a sounding board or whatever, right? And and so now he's free. He can escape, and he just goes and he just spirals into this. So that's she's the first. She's the first. And in fact, Roxy was supposed to go sailing with Tom on the 12th when he took Martha out. Mm-hmm. 
So that was horrible for her to realize that this is the same guy. When they brought the boat in, after the whole pantsless situation, Tom just said, let's not make a big deal of this. You don't have to tell anybody. And she didn't. You'll find out that these women, they didn't come forward when it happened. And it's not because they weren't disturbed, but it's because that's usually what happens. Yep. I have yep. never come forward with any of my assaults because that's just, it's just you there, there's a long litany of reasons so I think why women make that decision. As, as inappropriate as he was and as creepy as he was with Roxy, you're like, that guy's just a weirdo, right? Like, that's just, like, what's wrong with you? He takes it one step further with the next one. Oh, he takes it multiple steps further. So, so with her, you're like, okay, you're just, like, this weird, creepy, like, what's wrong with you? I don't want to see you again. And then it escalates. I told you, the escalation, you can see him unraveling Mm -hmm. and how Martha was just almost a natural progression. progression. Yeah. So the second woman, her name was Rosemary. She was a real estate agent up in Beverly. And Tom claimed that he was looking to buy some property to establish an office for his, quote, out-of-town clients. He told her that he had worked at NASA and after they saw the property, invites her to go out on his boat. Which not unusual. I don't I don't think. I I mean Yeah. Especially for the North Shore. Right. And like if you if you have money, if you're like, Oh, I'm gonna buy this house on my yacht. Yes, we'll go over this paperwork on my sailboat. Right. Sure sounds fairly standard. I don't have a sailboat or buy property, but that, that sounds standard. Yeah. So she meets up with him around 4.30 or so at his boat, and it's docked, right? He's not going anywhere. Looks over the paperwork. Let's go for a sail, he says. And he kept pushing and pushing. She finally agrees, and it becomes a bit of a nightmare for her. She tells him that she has appointments later on in the evening. He ignores this, takes them further and further out, and at one point he suggests that she comes down to the cabin. As I said, he had told her that he worked for NASA and he had, this is no joke, a bionic hand in the cabin. Do you want to come see it? No. No. She goes down into the cabin. When she tries to leave, he grabs her and he's just groping her hands all over, legs, arms, abdomen, up the shirt, in the pants, and she's alone on the water with this strange man that she's never met before. It's an absolutely terrifying situation. She said that she didn't scream because she didn't know how he was going to react. She said that the more she pulled away, the harder he pulled her in. Tom, you have to stop it. Tom, you have to stop it. That's what she kept telling him. He asked if they could just, quote, lay together. That's all he wanted. Lay lay down with me for a minute. Yeah, I've got... That he just sort of dropped his shorts and just held her. And, and while that's like he just. Probably hoping that that, that would, would coax her into sexual relations. Because no, apparently, isn't enough. As we still see today, men have a hard time taking no for an answer sometimes. But that was it. And, and he just stopped. So 
we we again see that that progression of with the first one that inappropriate behavior uh now it is elevated to you know uh, assault um but still there there's that line uh in whatever it's not murder context it is and he stops and just takes her home and that's that's that she said she got into her car and just wept this was three days before martha got on the boat so i definitely think this was an escalation. Yeah. And had it been any other woman on the boat Friday, the twelfth? Oh, I don't think it mattered what it, just, it, it just, was eventually going to it just happen. It to was be. gonna happen. Yeah. So this all comes out, as you said, on the seventeenth, that Wednesday. This is also when his wife comes home. So he meets her at the airport. I don't think she had heard anything about what was going on, but just think. The reaction when you come home and find out that your husband is not only has been going out on the boat with other women, but now one of them is missing. I'm sure he spun some. Oh, yeah, definitely. Tail. So now we come to Thursday, the 18th. Right. So, which was kind of the biggest day of the case. Yeah. And for it, a multitude of reasons. And it starts off with something a little weird, a little Salem strange. I think something that makes this case unique. Definitely. Salem. <laughs> Very Yeah. Yeah. Um so within the scope of of, of again uh nineteen ninety one, uh I, I don't even know how to introduce this without it sounding just like absolutely ridiculous. So I guess we can just we can just get right into it. So Thursday morning. Captain Murphy of the Salem Police Department, places a very unique call. Uh, so th- this is like a whole nother facet to this whole whole tale. So, so, so far, we've had your standard true crime, right? You, you have a murder, you have a suspect, you have the police sergeant, but now we're going to introduce something almost unique to Salem, and that is... The famous Witch of Salem? The official Witch of Salem, uh, Lori Cabot herself. I think we, we've talked about Lori before. Yes, we have. Uh, uh, several episodes. She's the official Witch of Salem. Uh, moves here 1951. Yep. Opens the first witch shop here, which is now a pasta shop. Uh, but that moved quickly to uh, Crowhaven Corner, which still stands today. However, she works out of Enchanted on the Wharf. Uh, she is 89 years old. And in 1991, she was involved with this case. And it wasn't uncommon during that time. Like right. during 1991, you may have called Lori for some advice. I mean, people Whether, still do. People come to Salem. Yeah, but not as much as they used no, to. Yeah. And like the call, like the toll free, you see the commercials yeah, or you see the ad in the paper, like call this psychic yeah. and have your fortune told, get a, advice, talk to the dead, what have you. I'm sure many people remember like 1-800-MISS-CLEO. Yeah. Right? Or like, oh, you call the psychic, you did... Whatever. And it wasn't unheard of to contact them for help on cases. Yeah. It wasn't and, normal, I'd say, but... And and we, you've all seen that trope, and I, I mentioned earlier, we've all seen enough CSI and Law and & Order, Blue Bloods, whatever your, your police show is, there's an episode or two with a psychic involved. And there's a reason for that. Is It's not just some made-up storytelling trope, it's something that, that did happen. 
And so here we have a Salem police captain reaching out to the official witch of Salem uh, and asking her to help them uh, try to find the body, try, try to solve the case. And she agrees. So Captain Murphy calls her, describes a little bit about Martha. Lori says she doesn't need much, just the name, birthday, and where where she lived. Where she lived. He had mentioned that they were searching up as far as Gloucester for her body. Lori says, you're not going to find her there. She's on the bottom of the ocean. She's weighed down. Something's around her waist. So Lori Cabot's psychic abilities, whatever you want to call them. Uh, she has what's called her alpha state, or the alpha. I, I'm not expressly sure that the terminology where in which she can... Uh, see through time and, and see things that we can't see and she also describes what happened on the boat as well she said that martha was um, naive and innocent and tom's actions uh, were sexual and, and aggressive in nature she rejected him he turned into some sort of a, a beast right so he that that switch he went from like calm and placid to to angry and aggressive and uh, struck her with part of the boat. Lori said that Martha had threatened to tell on him. He waited till her back was turned and hit her on the head. She screamed for help. He had a weapon, some type of weapon, a wrench maybe, Lori said. He's raped her. He's tied something around her waist, something weighted. There are bruises on her neck. She has a head injury to the right of her head, behind her ear. It's not fatal. She was strangled or left to drown after being sexually attacked. This man, he is an angry guy. Now, uh, she then tells them that uh, he has dumped her body overboard, and it is within sight of a lighthouse. And an island. And an island. Which is... Kind of hard to pinpoint on this coast. There's a few of them. Uh, but as, as we look at the evidence that she's provided being, uh, the head wound, the anchor, the, the weight belt, um, and with inside the island are, are sort of, I'd say four key factors to, to this situation, right? She's described, uh, those four things, regardless of anything else, uh, those are the important things that we need to, to, to stick with us with inside the lighthouse, weight belt, anchor and and the head wound it just so happens that right about this time a local lobsterman fisher fisherman we had this discussion (laughs) earlier whether you want to call him a commercial fisherman lobsterman i think he did both so yeah yeah so when and i said this earlier and i say this on to whenever i say lobsterman i think like like a man with lobster claws right Mm -hmm. i don't know but he's not fishing so I guess he is a commercial fisherman lobsterman, but it's it's the lobster part that's important here. His name was Hooper Goodwin, and he is going to make a grizzly discovery. He is out in the area of Cat Island, just off the coast of Marblehead. Mm-hmm. He is pulling up his six pods, his lobster pods. And Cat Island, by the way, has a lighthouse. And it's on the sixth pod. He feels something kind of tugging looks down and there's an anchor, an anchor tie, a small anchor intertwined with his line. He keeps pulling and he sees a foot. He says, okay, 
this is what they've been looking for. What do I do now? Because everyone knows, right? You're everyone not, knows. You're not you're not anyone who doesn't know, and especially, I guess, probably if you have a boat, and I don't know if he'd partake in any searches, but... He was definitely aware of it. Yeah. He, he calls the harbor master, says, we need to switch to a secure line. I think I found what you are looking for. He gently places her back into the water and waits for, for the authorities. And I should also mention that she is mostly skeletal remains at this point. Um, but around her waist is a weighted belt, what scuba divers would yeah. use. So, so she had an anchor tied around her ankles and a scuba diver's weight belt around her waist. Which is pretty standard. The, the, the weight belt standard also, like, for boats is not just diving. Like, if, if you're working on your boat and you're trying to, like, get barnacles off or whatever else, adding a little weight to yourself okay. is going to... But you wouldn't call that diving? No, I would. I mean, it is you do you have to use it for diving because you need to be neutrally buoyant in the water to control your breathing. But um, I would say most people probably have some sort of weight or weight belt on their boat, not just exclusively for divers. Gotcha. Right now, Cat Island, as Lori had said, she would be in view of an island. Cat Island also has a lighthouse. So at this point, without even getting into the the the. Uh, autopsy of the body three out of four of the things that Lori had said which this this guy had no idea Hooper Goodwin yeah so Lori <laughs> I mean huh, people like to say Lori solved the case but it's not just, really it's a f- phenomenal coincidence because um, it was within hours within like within hours. within two hours of Lori giving this prediction yeah. this claim the, that, this guy happens to find the body I, I don't know. I, I'd s- believe what you will. Coincidence. Um, but it, it made it very apparent that this was definitely not an accident. Right. So now they uh, take control of the body. And like, as you said, uh, uh, skeletal remains. Um, I have to use dental records. Her uh, dentist was the one um, who ID'd her because they could not arrest Mamoni yeah. until they knew that it was Martha. And uh, f- I don't know when this was determined, uh, but it was also determined that the cause of death was drowning. Um, and the autopsy, or the, uh, a further autopsy, uh, showed that there were several head wounds. I mean, if, if and weight belt wasn't enough, right? Like, mm-hmm. there, there is now, she was alive when she was thrown in the water. Most likely. Unfortunately, her lungs were so decomposed that okay. there wasn't they couldn't definitively say whether or not she had entered the water alive but there were head wounds yes but those wounds were not fatal there was some slight bruising on the skull but none of which would have been a, a lethal caused, blow no. the coroner even said it might not have even knocked her out so with the head wounds with the weight belt with the anchor uh she also had a, a chip tooth or two we now have more than enough evidence uh, for the police to go after Tom Amoni. And where is he? Gone. Because while he's an utter idiot, he's not a complete and utter idiot. I think he saw the writing on the wall. I think he was listening. I think they kept it under wraps too much. Mm. Oh, no, actually. We- oh, he would have. Oh, 
you're right. He would have seen. You see boats. You he hear would have boat, seen helicopters. everyone going because once the body was yeah. determined that, that there is a body, all the harbor masters, they were they started to go in that direction the helicopters like when you're downtown and there's like a news store there's all of a sudden there's four helicopters above you you're like oh shit what's going on right and you know it's normally just there's a hundred thousand people visiting salem but all of a sudden if you're the guy who commits the murder and now all of a sudden there's boat zooming through the water and there's two helicopters above your head you're like they found her and you book it he has fled the coop he claimed to be off to see his lawyer so his wife and Friends, in-laws? Yep, friends. Uh, uh, the McCarthy's, McCarthy's. The McCarthy's up in Beverly. Yeah. So they were the last people to see him. He showed up at their house. They were probably like some of his last supporters in town. They were friends with him and his wife, Patty. They had gone out on their boat together. Also, another weird coincidence, the, probably the weirdest coincidence. Do you want to know the name of the McCarthy's boat? Counterpoint? No, that's that's... I know. That's I the Mahoney or the Mahoney's boat. I don't know. If they, it would have been a coincidence if they owned the boat same name. So, like I said, this is their friends uh-huh. in this situation. Mahoney even went to their boat on Monday night to have dinner. Their boat's name was Sarah B. Oh, look at you. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? It's a little weird. It's Just a little, a little weird? It could be anything okay you know this weird that's weird well you have a little part to play in the story do a picture of it this is i was on my porch reading this read that and i was alone at night and i look around and i'm just like are you what are you fucking kidding me what i wonder what it's for the name yeah i mean my grandparents named their boat sarah k why because that's my first and middle name. Oh. But yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah. So weird. Also, shout out to Patreon subscriber Sarah Blake, because that's your <laughs> that's your last initial, too. So weird. Told you. Random coincidences. But yes, he left the McCarthy's house up in Beverly. I think they had even said, like, oh, go check out this guy. He could be your lawyer. And that was the last anyone heard from him. And he's gone. He's making his escape. So that's... The, let me get a date here. We keep going days. So that's all on Thursday the 18th. Then we have Friday the 19th. And do we have when the, the second call went to Lori Cabot? I don't have a, a time for it, but it's at some point on Friday. Yeah, yeah. But it's like it becomes a full-blown manhunt. Like right. this is probably one of the most wanted guys in the state, if not the region. In fact... America's Most Wanted checked into the Hawthorne Hotel that night. They were planning to run a story on him for the following Friday. There we go. Uh, Captain Murphy of the Salem PD, as he sees that his encounter with with Lori Cabot, uh, the direct correlation of the body was found, whether or not she pointed them in the direction. You you can't deny that within hours of talking to the witch, the body was found. Uh, He's like, you know what? Let's try it again. I don't blame him, right? Like, it totally worked last time. Let's talk to her again. Uh, So he places another call to Lori Cabot, and she again uh, agrees to help. She again, in in this concept of the alpha state, I think one of the first things she says is is that she sees him in a mirror. He's shaved off his mustache. Uh, So to, 
to paint a picture of, of Tom Mamoni uh, for you at this point. He looks like a wish version of Dr. Phil. Uh, <laughs> he's got that big 1991 black mustache, slightly balding. Uh, um, definitely balding. A lot balding. Uh, and, and that's what this is. So now he's shaved off his mustache. And she also says he's heading north. Yes. To Canada. She then says that she'll hex him or, or curse him. Put a put a binding spell on him. Uh, to ensure that he'll do something stupid or foolish. And thankfully, he, he does do something relatively foolish, re- incredibly stupid. In multiple ways. Yeah. First off, he stops just shy of the Canadian border. So he goes about five hours north to a place called Waite, Maine. Uh, from a quick Google search, it looks just like a tiny little middle nowhere Maine town. They had less than 150 residents. Yeah. Very uh, small. Very even, rural. Yeah, very Maine. But it's about an hour from the Canadian border. And it's the middle of summer, so it's not even the middle of winter. It's not even like you got to trek through the snow. Uh, it's probably densely forested. I think he chickened out. I think he was worried about making that cross and wanted to avoid any I, type of confrontation. Yeah, I, I think he... I don't know if chickened out is the right word. I think he's just a coward to begin with. Oh, 100%. So there's no reason for him to get caught at the border, right? If he leaves Massachusetts at noonish on Thursday, pumps up to Canada, there's no reason that anyone should stop him at the border. In 1991, today... They're gonna they're gonna clock you within twenty minutes, right? But you probably didn't even need a passport to get into Canada at that point. Oh no, definitely not. Like you, you probably just hop, skip, and a jump. You can be like, oh yeah, just going up to Quebec or Montreal for the weekend or whatever. It's a Saturday. It's it's not like there's not dozens of other people. But he's just a pathetic person, and he couldn't he couldn't do it. Uh, so instead, he camps out in someone else's cabin. Just a small, what looked like a summer cabin. I, I think uh, winter cabin, and that's, sorry. Oh, that would make more sense. It's northern Maine. But it's it's not a place, and this is one of the, the things that gives it away, and I don't know if winter summer cabin really makes a difference, but it's not somewhere that someone should have been. He's now there, car parked outside. The neighbors take notice. Right. So imagine you're living in the middle of nowhere in rural Maine and the cabin two houses down from you is only in use in January when people are skiing or hunting or whatever the case may be. And now all of a sudden there's a strange car there with the lights on. I'm going to call the police. And thank goodness they did because that bastard was Tom Mimoni. So the police come and they, they find him. He's hiding in the cabin. Just hanging out. An, an oh my half. gosh. They said that he slept in two beds. <laughs> like it, they almost, they made it sound like Goldilocks and the bears. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, she like tries he was, them anyway, he yeah. was testing them out. So he's there for a couple days. And again, and then there's the, a million other places he could have chosen, but I think he, I genuinely, I think part of him wanted to get caught. Like he knew, he knew that this was not going to end well. He had to have known. I, I always said he, if he'd gone South instead of North, probably never would have heard from him again. He would have been on America's Most Wanted for for 15 years. You could have gone south, straight down to, you know, Cancun and and worked as a deckhand. See, I don't think he could have handled it. I really don't think... His his, his narcissism would have let him do it? That, and he's a coward. I don't... He needs someone there with him. He wants the attention. He needs the attention, and he needs, needs like, a crutch. He needs that comfort, and I think Patty, his wife, was that comfort. That makes sense. 
But anyway, who knows? Who knows? Thankfully, he he didn't go south. Did something foolish, just like Lori Cabot said he was going to. So Uh, whether or not it was the spell or him just being dumb, thankfully, the police were able to nab him. And when they nabbed him, FYI, he had shaved off his mustache. Yes. So, uh, you know, icing on Lori Cabot's cake there. We will Uh, drop the mic for her. Yes. She, she She got a lot right. There's no arguing that. Official Witch of Salem helping helping out the, the Salem PD. You know what stunned me? I looked through a bunch of old newspaper reports from this time, just trying to see like how the newspapers portrayed it. Not one of them that I found talked about Lori Cabot. No. It was not like a hot topic in the case, at least then. I think it was in the police report, if I recall. It's been a while since I've actually gone really? back and read read that. The Boston papers picked it up big time, yeah. and not a single one mentioned Lori. Yeah. Like, give her credit when credit is due. But it's also the 90s, and people, satanic panic, you know. Right? Yeah. So he's arrested. He's brought down to Salem. And, uh... They got him. They finally got him. You say finally. It took a week. Like, I feel in the scope of a lot of these things, they go much longer than that. Like, it was... Six, it was very quick moving. Very quick. Very quick. Like when I tell you, it happened within a week, seven, not even, I mean, Friday to Friday is caught on Saturday. So one week from filing an official uh, missing person, I think, and I don't know what the statistics are. Yeah, but the funny thing is they had him. Like they, they, yeah. they literally went to him from, first. He was like one, one of the, like right after, yeah. he's the first yeah. person that the detective went to after talking to Brian Brailsford. So they had him right at the beginning, and they could sense it. They knew it. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't get him, get him, until they had a body. They had the evidence. And, of course, they got the body within hours of Lori Cabot telling it. So crazy. Yeah. So after that, it's it's relatively simple. Now, let's just say this was not a sure win for the prosecution. They had really no cause of death, despite the weight, the anchor, the bruises on her head. Like we said, those weren't enough to kill her. So technically, they have no sure cause of death. They have no eyewitnesses to the actual incident, and they have no murder weapon. That's a hard hill to climb. But one thing they do have are those those other women's uh, testimonies, uh, which establish a pattern of behavior. So he has shown evidence to bad acts, and and there are uh, several cases uh, they cite within Massachusetts Commonwealth, and I guess that's sort of how court cases work, right? Because we used this evidence in this case, we can use it again. Yeah, um, called precedent. Precedent, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Or so, they cite these cases to establish uh, his pattern of behavior is leading towards this this situation. Not just with his abuse towards women, but also with his pathological lying. That's another thing. Not only do we have uh, this bad act uh, precedent, there's his rampant bullshit. Uh, So to sort of lay it back out for you guys, he's lied about being married. To a significant amount of people. Uh, He lied to his wife about being married, by the way. He'd been married. She was his fourth wife. 
she only thought she was his second wife. And that his first had died of cancer, which was not true. Yes. Uh, He has lied to her about his job. So I don't think she knew that he lost his job at Parker Brothers. You would think. I mean, if he's not going to work. Where is he going? Every every day. day. And uh, he lied to one of these women about his position at NASA. He's told, and it's not just the women too, he his neighbors, like yeah. everyone um, in the area had I guess a different... He, he's claimed at some point to have a PhD. Yeah. Uh, when they went through some of his belongings, they found business cards with his name, with just made up, not made up jobs, not like dinosaur hunter, like... <laughs> but like not his job. Not his jobs, fake business cards so that he was going around. And then he's uh, telling this other woman he's interested in buying property. He's in uh, his outside clients, his investors. At one point he says he, he knows how to fly planes, that he was a pilot in the military, which he was Oh, he, he was, yeah, he, he was claimed not. to be in the military as well. I mean, well. he was in the military. But, he went to Vietnam. But, but he, he lied about the service uh, connected to yep. that. So it's lie after lie after lie. And it's not just the lies that he's told. It's also the fact that we are now getting into, and we're going to get into this in a second. Uh, it's generally recorded as, as, as three different stories. But like I said, I, I like to include that fourth one with Brian. So it goes from, I don't know Martha at all, to I just saw Martha on the beach, to I took her out on the boat and dropped her at Winter Island, to we did go out and the rogue wave. But it doesn't end there. No, he he really beefs up that last story for his statement during the trial. So during the trial, we come up with another story of the rogue wave, which has now set to explain the further details of the case, which uh, by any and all accounts and several, not eyewitnesses, um, expert testimonies sort of showed evidence that this is just a bunch of bullshit. Um so he claims that he was able to pull her body out of the water, that she was unconscious and suffering from hypothermia, and that he stripped her down and tried to put towels on her to, to warm her up. Yeah, he claimed he went into, quote, emergency mode. Yeah, whatever that means. He painted himself as a hero. Yeah, but he was too late. He said he stripped her down, wrapped her in towels... And for some reason, instead of calling the harbor master, instead of calling the Coast Guard, instead of driving the boat in, he just froze in his I mean, I've, I've never been in a situation like that, but I feel like if, if I was on a boat and someone went overboard and you managed to pull them up and they're, they're freezing and they're cold and they're unconscious, you give it all the gas you got and call the Get back. Coast Guard and you, you fly. Mayday, mayday. Like that's... It, I, right? And and he panics and he doesn't do this and then he realizes that it's too late and she's already gone and so he then he says he ties the weight belt to her and the anchor because he has to get rid of the body because it wouldn't look of course it because would he would have lost his marriage and he couldn't go through that he just couldn't that is the story that is put forth in his defense they're not arguing that Tom isn't a liar he is a liar. He's a pathological liar. He's been one all his life. That's what his lawyer says. And he's not going to stop. This guy has problems. They said this is just something. It makes sense with his nature. He is a perpetual avoider. He's going to avoid conflict at any turn. He's going to lie his way out of things. So in this situation, he can't go back to shore with Martha and have Martha tell everyone in the neighborhood that this, this Tom Mamoni guy attacked her. Or made a move on her, made a pass at her. 
and then have his marriage be in jeopardy, that can't happen. He can't lose his wife. He can't lose his facade. Everyone sees him as, oh, that's just Mamoni. He lives on Settler's Way in this nice little condo with him and his wife in a sailboat. Like, that's that's the image that he needed to maintain. Like, you're not wrong, but I also always question, he tells everyone, like, a different story. He didn't have the same facade, right? And that, different facades. Like, probably depending on, A, how he was feeling that day, <laughs> and B... How, like what he gets from the other person. Yeah, so yeah. he's trying to give that audience whatever he thinks they want to hear. They want a little sympathy. He's got to, and yeah. it, maybe it's a power play that he's from NASA if he thinks he's got it. And he just keeps sort of, can you imagine the, just the stress? Of trying to keep all those lies up. And then what happens if someone that heard one lie is in the same room with someone that heard the other lie? Right. Imagine you're at Red's and you're sitting down having dinner with breakfast with your wife. I was going to say, they don't serve dinner. Sorry. You're, you're sitting down having breakfast at Red's with your wife, and in comes John. He's like, oh, hey, Tom, how's the new job at NASA? Right? <laughs> and then and then someone else is like, oh, hey, Tom. Uh, how's so- your plane? Yeah, sorry, the wife passed away. Is this your sister? Oh, my God. Right? How, did, how he told so many people that he didn't have a wife. Like, how did he get away with I that? I don't know. These are the things that, I mean, it doesn't keep me up at night. But these are the things that keep me up at night. You know what else he told someone? He told one woman he had just gotten back from his third transatlantic voyage. Oh, of course. And during the third one, his boat was hit by a whale. What is this Moby Dick? Like, are you kidding? So now we have story number four, which is... That it was an accident and that he's the hero of the tale. He tried his best to save her, but in a panic, he disposed of her body. But it was not him that killed her. It was the water. Mm -hmm. But the jury doesn't buy it. We should also mention that this trial began on February 1st, 1993. So we are a year and a half Mm -hmm. after the actual incident. Mm -hmm. Things take time, right? Yeah, there's the pretrial or or there's the... um, Indictment, is that right? Yeah, um, there's an A word that comes before that. Oh, hearing? Arraignment. Arraignment, thank you. (laughs) I've been to those. Um, (laughs) I should know. Um, So you have your arraignment and then your pretrial... And, you know, in all of these, there was probably deals that were being made between his lawyer and, and the defense. And is he going to go to jury trial? Right. Is he going to plead out? You know, if he had pled guilty, he might have gotten like the reduced sentence. And we've seen all that on. So oh, the, no, but he can't do that. No, because then that's admitting. And he stands true by his whatever. His accident story. And uh, February 1993, the trial lasts what, like, like a week and a half. Yeah, less than two weeks. And might I also add that this took place in Newburyport's mm-hmm. courthouse, which, random side note, was designed by Charles Bullfinch. Oh, there we go. And is where Daniel Webster practiced some of his first cases. Bringing it back. Would Bring you look it at back. that? It's all connected. It's all connected. It's like that meme. You think like, I- <laughs> I should do that with you and say we should do that Salem history. Just get Let's like a just whole like board. Let's just like get a big board and get all the topics <laughs> yes. and then tie them in however oh, actually, way. That's actually like a that would fun, be fun idea. We could do that. Yeah. A wall. Until we're up at like three in the morning. Like, wait, no, oh let, let me just add one Let's, more. One more. Ties to wet and uh, uh, and Derby's mansion and and the the tunnels and the opium. <laughs> um. So his uh, trial lasts uh, 
week and a half, and he gets found guilty of second-degree murder. The jury was made up of nine men and three women. It didn't last long, the deliberation. At the end of it all, they found him guilty. Now, there were four possible outcomes. Murder in the first degree, murder in the second degree, manslaughter, and not guilty. Standard. They found him guilty of second-degree murder. Which is fair. So no pre- Right. Predetermination. No, not predetermination. Premeditated. Premeditated. So first-degree murder is you are going into the situation with the intent to kill someone. Yeah, going into the situation. Right. Like, I bring the gun to the the thing, and I'm like, I'm going to kill you. That's first-degree murder with intent. Second-degree is intent but not premeditated. So he intended to kill her in this situation, but he didn't get on the boat with the intent to kill her that day. And then manslaughter would have been, uh, it was a total accident. He pushed her and she hit her head and, and bled out. Um, that's where we get like vehicular homicide and, and these sorts of things. It's, you're still at fault, but it, it wasn't intentional. Right. And then of course, uh, not guilty. And thank goodness the jury used common sense in this situation. Because even though they didn't have, like we said, the murder weapon, the eyewitnesses, they were able to connect the dots mm-hmm. and really see through his lies. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing, too. If you're being told that this guy has been a liar all his life, how the hell are you going to believe anything he says on the stand? And he, I couldn't believe that he testified on behalf of himself. They, he went on the stand, and he tells this big story, and there's pictures of him crying, breaking down as, he, as he's on the stand. Mm-hmm. It's like, you got to be kidding me. And then poor Martha's family has to be in there listening to it all. Damn, what do you call it? Crocodile tears? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. With that second-degree sentencing, he received 15 years, after which he would be eligible for parole. It was technically a, a life sentence. Of course, if you yeah, listen, so, so. I was going to say, if you listen to true crime, you know that life sentences do not equal your entire life. Uh, so life sentence and then uh, parole after 15. And one thing that tripped me up a little here is we, we'll talk about his paroles briefly. He's first eligible for parole in 2006. And I'm like, February 93, 2006. Because he served those 1.5 years while yeah. he was awaiting trial. Yes. So those all automatically are factored in. Yes. So, so he was only looking at 13 and a half years before he was eligible. Mm-hmm. And um, 2006, 2011, 2016 uh, are the, the dates he was eligible for parole. So you're eligible every five every years. Every five years. But one of the biggest conditions about getting off on parole is admitting fault, expressing remorse, and he never did. He always maintained every, and he went for all those parole hearings. Like he made it a point to try to get out, but every single time he never was, he could not, he physically could not tell the truth. So I believe it's 2011, parole hearing gets denied, and he would have to undergo significant, psychological treatment and and rehabilitation rehabilitation thank you to be better you're like you're still a broken person you haven't shown any signs of this if you want to get out you're gonna have to have to 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 fix that and poor martha's family has to come in every time there's a hearing yeah so it just keeps getting dredged up over and over and over again but thankfully 
in 2017, Tom Mamoni does everyone a favor and dies at the age of 72. He was taken to the hospital in Boston. Is he, so he doesn't just die in his cell. He doesn't. Uh, he's yeah, not m- no murdered. prisoner gets him or anything yeah, like that. He uh, he just uh, he's sick. He's probably goes to the hospital and ends up passing away. There's and a few articles written about it at that point in time. All very few sentences, you know. Convicted murderer dies. That's it. And took what happened that day on the boat, July twelfth, nineteen ninety one, to his grave. He never once told the real story, unless you want to believe his bullshit, but. But he never admitted what really happened. And I think it's so sad, too, because Martha was a lover of the water. We yeah. said one of the reasons why she lived up on the North Shore was because of how much she loved sailing. Her and her husband loved it. She was actually a certified scuba diver, wakeboarding, all the things. And, and her for her to meet her death. Great, 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 great grandfather. Came here in Gloucester. He was a fisherman. He came out of Salem, fisherman, uh, established this uh, city as we know it today. And it's. For her to meet her demise on the water is yeah. just so sad. The parole board said that the details of the sexual assault and the violent beating will never truly be known, but he has no possibility of succeeding uh, in parole because of his current state of pathological lying. His lies are shallow, ineffective, and obvious to everyone but himself, and he has taken no steps towards rehabilitation. And he must seek treatment for this psychological condition in order to make any progress towards parole. If he were ever uh, able to improve his ability to be honest with himself and truthful to others, his next step would be to confront the issues related to the sexual aggression. He has years of work ahead of him. His criminal thinking, pathological lying, antisocial behavior, and sexual aggression uh, indicates that he would almost certainly reoffend if he was let out. I would agree. Because the guy, he, he could hardly function at the age of 46 yeah. in those situations. He obviously made horrible decisions. So what makes anyone think that after he, y- years of being incarcerated that he's somehow magically better? And it's, sometimes there are people who are, and they take steps to fix the things that were broken. And he had done none of that. But if you can't even admit that those things are broken in the first place, then... Good luck. Get back. Go away. We don't want you. And then you die. Do we, do we have... That wraps everything up. Thank goodness Salem is free of this jackass. And if you are at the Salem Willows, and you want to say a word for Martha or leave a flower. There is a plaque down there. I haven't gone to see it yet, but I read they dedicated a small garden at the Willows Park in her name. So that is the case of Martha Brailsford. Thank you for joining us for our first Salem true crime, well, second, modern Salem true crime uh, story. I think this is one of the most modern topics we've covered thus far. Yeah, yeah. 1991. If you are interested in learning more about this story, I have one huge suggestion that I devoured. There is a book called A Scream on the Water, A True Story of Murder in Salem. And this came out just a few years after 
the court case wrapped up. So it was very, a very quick turnaround. The woman who wrote it conducted an exorbitant amount of interviews with everyone involved. And it paints such a good picture of what went on, not just in that week of, you know, when the incident occurred, but also continues through the trial. And you'll get way more information than we gave you today. Um, We gave you a lot, but you got to leave out some details to make it somewhat appropriate for timing. Yeah, this is already going to be a long one. I know. Sorry. (laughs) But yeah, check out that book, A Scream on the Water. We'll link it in the show notes. There's also another piece of media that at first I was going to suggest we plug, but now I'm like, "Mm, it's so I want, it was the first thing I watched when we decided to do this topic. It's um, what's it called? Your, your worst nightmare, right? Yeah. So it's a mini series TV show. Uh, It's available on Amazon. Your worst nightmare. Uh, Season one, episode three, waterfowl is, is based. So it's based on a true story. It's distinctly one of those things that's a little, uh, there are some historical inaccuracies. There's a lot, like a lot of it. But. Is inaccurate. Uh, they do talk to, they talk to, talk to her, the, the author of the book. Margaret Press. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they talk to uh, Martha Railsford's friend. I can't remember her name. They talk to Detective uh, Grosninski. And it's interesting to hear like their words yes. about the account. Um, I, will, I will say that. It's nice to hear their commentary. Yeah. So but what you see, the events and how they take place, not how it went. Definitely not. And the gentleman who they have played, Tom Mamoni, is actually attractive. Tall, attractive, uh, not the wish version of Dr. Phil. And like when the police show up, his wife is home and she's like, I'm his wife. What do you mean? She's supposed to be dead. It was just, there was a lot of things that, we're just wrong, but like you said, well, it's based on a true story. Slightly different. Like they, they weave it, they have all the, the right points, they weave it together incorrectly in some spots. In a, in a quicker way that yeah. fits into like a 45-minute yeah. snippet. I don't, I don't even think it's 45 minutes, to be fair. <laughs> Might be. Oh, with Crap. like the commercial breaks and stuff? With, yeah, I think it comes at about 40. But Okay. Oh, it's, it's five minutes off. Okay. It's interesting. It was. It's just another piece of media, and and, and it is, it is interesting to to see that. And I I like being able to listen, like I said, to to some of the people involved. And once again, I know I already plugged this book, but if you are a fan of Salem, it was really cool to read about the different locations. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we talked about the Willows a lot today, but the town was a buzz. The kind of headquarters of the search party where most of the people were meeting was down at, well, what is now Mercy Tavern, but back in the day was um, in a pig's eye. Okay. So the detective's girlfriend worked there as a bartender. So she, you know, every time they got a break in the case, he'd phone the restaurant because, you know, no cell phones, and she would announce to everyone. So <laughs> I love it. Welcome to the small town. Oh, and last little tiny tidbit of weird info. I was really interested to find out what happened to Hooper Goodwin, the yeah, guy who yeah. found the body. And um, he seems to be doing really well for himself. He's He owns like a contracting company. He's much older now. But he made himself a little empire. And from all accounts, he's like a really awesome pillar of the community. <laughs> and last thing, 
when I was looking for him, I found a, a picture of him with George Clooney and the cast of A Perfect Storm. Oh. So there's that. <laughs> well, of course, because it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was filmed up in Gloucester. Yeah. And I think he, I think I, I found him credited on the special features. So I think he gets interviewed for some of the special features for A Perfect Storm, which is just a random, bizarre connection. And actually, if you think about it, 1991. Yeah, yeah. And 1992. Have you realized like how much shit is going on in and around Salem during this time? Martha Brailsford is murdered. The perfect storm. The the what's the boat called? The Andrea Gale. Oh yeah, yeah. Goes yeah. missing in October of nineteen ninety one. And then nineteen ninety two, we come up on the tricentennial? I'm not I'm not saying that right. The tricentenary? No, that's wrong too. The 300th year anniversary of the witch trials. Yeah. So like Salem itself. Which is the memorial. Right. And and the whole tercentenary. There we go. Right? Yeah, I think so. So you've got so much going on in the midst of this. And Hocus Pocus was then filmed here. Oh my God. And Hocus Pocus was filmed in 93. There's like, it's a really wild. I think 92. It must have been 92. Oh yeah. yeah, Maybe 91 too. But yeah, so much Early going, 90s Salem, man. So much going on in Salem during this time. It's just weird to think about all these stories crossing. Any final thoughts? So the investigating officer is is who? Uh Prosninski. Detective Sergeant Conrad uh Prosnuski. 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 And he's in charge of the case and he's the detective. He's the investigating officer. He retired after forty one years on the job. Do you know what he does now? You do not. I want to guess what he does now. Don't tell me he's a tour guide. Nope, nope, nope. Counselor at large, Conrad Prosninski. He is one of our sitting city counselors. Shut up. Yep. Are you serious? Yep. Same job as Ty Hapworth. Counselor Hapworth, uh, Counselor Prosninski. Holy shit. I want to shake this man's hand when I meet him. (laughs) Or talk to him. He will be like very... I feel like, I don't know if he's going to feel weirded out that, like, we're dredging up this old story. I mean, a lot of people got to do it probably pretty regularly. I don't know, like, how many people in Salem. Yeah, or... and I'm sure with her 30th, like, the 30th anniversary yeah. of her death, I feel like people would have, it would have come up a little bit. He's probably done, I've seen him in some interviews. Uh, he's probably done some other interviews. But, you know, if you ever, maybe we could sit down and talk to him at Holy some point. Sh- I would, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Counselor Prosninski. I like. I know that people involved in this are obviously still around right. Salem. I mean, we. I know, and we were talking to someone a couple days ago, and he was like, "Oh, he's here in ninety ninety one. I was like, "Holy shit, you were around. You were around." And when I, that happened, I've had people on my tour who were, "Yeah, I was here." Like as I'm telling them this murder story, they're like, "Oh yeah, I remember that." And I'm like, "What?" It's so weird to but think like, about. Our city councilor, one of our city councilors. So we have several districts, so they all have, like, we have ward counselors, and then I think we have three at-large counselors, which represent the whole city. And yeah, he's one of them. Wow. So he's still active in Salem, in city government. Uh, yeah. We should probably do, like, an addendum interview. We like, could do follow that. follow-up. We'd love to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. That's I think, it. I think we took them on a long enough ride. Join us next time. Join us on Patreon. Yes. And email, show notes, book tours, all that. Get new merch. Where do you keep your ectoplasm? Maybe it's in your skull moss. Maybe it's somewhere else. No matter where you keep it, we got a (laughs) t-shirt.
Thanks for listening. See you later.